Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver, LLC. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trusts and estates, real estate succession and exit planning, legal technology, law practice management and leadership, and upon occasion, well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory Housing and Business Centers, and Carson Private Client. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is David Murray. Dave is Vice President of Sterling Foundation Management LLC based in Reston, Virginia. Sterling manages family-initiated charitable entities including private foundations, operating foundations, public charities, supporting organizations, and operates a donor-advised fund in addition to providing philanthropic advisory services. Sterling also provides secondary planning services for existing split-interest charitable trusts, including charitable remainder trusts, charitable lead trusts, and offers tax-exempt trust planning services for clients with appreciated real estate, concentrated positions, and business interests. Sterling does not manage or custody assets and doesn't provide tax, legal, or investment advice. Dave has over two decades of experience in charitable planning, 
works extensively with trust and estate attorneys, accountants, and financial advisors. He has bachelor and graduate degrees in engineering and an MBA, married with two children. And I see Dave at quite a few conferences around the country in the trust and estates realm, and we just say that Sterling always has some of the best swag. So they have these like lovely bags that I'm always trying to bring home from conferences and carry everything else in. Anyway, Dave and I are going to do a series uh, discussing tax-exempt trusts. And so today we're going to do the backdrop. It'll be the first in this series and just kind of summarize what the use of tax-exempt trust under Internal Revenue Code Section 664 and particularly in the sale of appreciated assets. So thanks for joining me today, Dave. Mary, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. And so to get us started, what is a tax-exempt trust under Internal Revenue Code Section 664? Absolutely, Mary. And before um, I, I answer that, I'd like to just say that, uh, or emphasize that Sterling, uh, we're not attorneys, uh, and nothing I say today on today's podcast should be considered as, as tax or legal advice. Now, let's get to the topic. Using tax-exempt trust under Internal Revenue Code Section 664. Now, I think, Mary, I'd like to start with a story that will help illustrate what we're talking about. Let, let's say we have a couple. Call them William and Kate. And William and Kate have a child, and they have grandchildren. And let's say they have an appreciated asset. Could be investment real estate, could be a concentrated position like company stock, could be a business interest. The thing is, they want to diversify away from or sell this asset. But if they sell the asset outright, they will have to pay tax and they don't want to pay tax. But if instead they gift the asset to a tax exempt trust, the trust can then sell the asset immediately and the trust is not required to pay tax on the sale proceeds. That's right, zero tax. Instead, the trust can reinvest the entire sale proceeds into a diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, and other similar investments. So, so I'm just going to jump in here and, and yeah. rephrase tax exempts the nature. And so when you say yes. they're going to pay tax, let's say it's a business, they sell a business, it's a C corporation, they're going to get capital gains treatments, but there may also be some ordinary income. So if I just own a business and I sell it to you, bottom line is I'm going to be paying some ordinary income tax and capital gain. And if I founded that company 20 some years ago for $0, everything that I get paid is going to be subject to tax in some format. And so what you're talking about is there are strategies to be able to sell assets, whether it's my business or let's say I got lucky and I bought real estate for $1,000 right out of law school, and it's now worth a fortune. That's another asset I can use. I just wanted to clarify that. And so the, we're going into these trusts Absolutely. that can reduce that tax cost both at the time of the sale and potentially on an ongoing basis? That's right. So these, these taxes and trusts by their nature are tax deferral vehicles. Okay. So you won't pay tax today because you're not selling the asset. The asset's being gifted to the trust, and the trust is selling the asset. And the, the only time you'll have to pay tax in the future, and we'll get to this, is when you take income from the trust. You'll pay tax on that income. So let's go back to William and Kate and your example. Sure. I just wanted to jump in there for a clarification. No, that's awesome. We're going to go back. So, so I, like, I love this term multi-generational, Mary. Um, I get inspired when I, when I think of this term. So another great thing about these tax-exempt trusts is they're multi-generational 
um, they're multi-generational benefits. So what do I mean by this? It's simply because such a trust can be designed to allow a couple like William and Kate who want to sell an appreciated asset to receive income from the trust once it's funded, not just for the rest of their lives, but could allow their children to receive income for their lives and their grandchildren to receive income for their lives or a term of up to 20 years as well. A period we typically estimate would be 50 to 60 years for most families. It's a long time. And here's an amazing thing about these trusts. From a total income perspective, if William and Kate were to use a tax-exempt trust when selling their appreciated asset and have the trust sell the asset instead of selling it themselves and paying the tax and then reinvesting the proceeds, it's very likely they would double or better the amount of total income their family would receive compared to, like I said, just selling the asset, paying tax, and then reinvesting the proceeds. Okay, so I think you're going to expand on this, but can we yeah. maybe talk about some of the drill-down details of this type of trust? Absolutely. So the tax-exempt trust we're referring to is, as I'm referring to it, is actually a charitable remainder trust. Now, I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of charitable remainder trusts. In fact, I bet some of your listeners may even have a charitable remainder trust, also known by its acronym CRT. And as you know, Mary, charitable remainder trusts are regulated under Section 664 of the Internal Revenue Code. The thing is, and this is a key point, we've been in the business of charitable planning since 1998. It makes me feel old to say this, but that's like about 25 years plus. And we worked extensively with charitable remainder trusts. And we've noticed something very interesting. Many families, certainly not all, but many, with appreciated capital assets, overlook or simply discard the idea of what is commonly referred to as a charitable remainder trust because, quite simply, they're not focused on being charitable in the classic sense. Instead, they are focused on the fact that, for them, charity begins at home. So, for example, mom and dad want to take care of their children and grandchildren. And you know what? We respect this. It's perfectly natural. But the thing is, if a charitable remainder trust is designed properly, it can provide significant benefits to a family who has not expressed an interest in supporting charity. And just to say that there's, yeah. it's often yeah. that I'll have a client who has not a lot of charitable inclination. Maybe they don't even believe in charity at home. But then you can show them the tax benefits of some of these structures, and they might be driven to save taxes. Exactly. And exactly. economically, it's still, it makes sense because it's got great tax benefits. Yeah. So I think it's a great point, Mary. I think classically charitable remainder trusts are typically prescribed for, say, for example, mom and dad with an appreciated asset will give the asset to the trust. Mom and dad will get income for their life. And then when, they, when the last surviving passes, whatever's left will go to charity. I think what's different about these trusts and the way they're structured, we'll get more into the technical details a bit later on, is that we're adding, we're adding multiple generations to the trust and stretching out the income phase and pushing out the timing of, to which the charity will receive the money down the road. Again, looking at 50 to 60 years in many cases. So, so when I use the term tax-exempt trust under Section uh, 664, I'm really talking about a charitable remainder trust specifically designed for a family with more important to them non-charitable objectives. And so can you explain how a charitable remainder trust works? Absolutely. So 
Um, the basic idea of a tax-exempt trust in this context is that once the trust is funded with an appreciated capital asset, it pays income to the income beneficiaries for their lives or for a pre-specified term of up to 20 years. And then whatever is left in the trust or its remainder, if you will, is paid to charity with the parents who are the asset owners as lifetime income beneficiaries so they can receive income from the trust while they're living. And then we'll add their children as successor income beneficiaries so they can start receiving income once their parents are no longer living. And we can add grandchildren as successor income beneficiaries to their parents so that once their parents are no longer living, they can start taking income from the trust, okay? So we can typically have three generations of income beneficiaries. Now, the charitable beneficiary is the entity or entities that is named to receive the remainder interest in the trust. So once the life of the trust ends, and this is when the, the family members are no longer taking income from the trust as income beneficiaries, we typically set these trusts to have a, have a remainder interest be distributed to a donor advised fund, okay? There now, are options on that though, right? there are, It can be, it, it, really there are options. It could it be any qualified public charity, absolutely. And, and so talking, now when you're yeah, talking yeah. about these income beneficiaries, you're talking about basically a period of 50 to 60 years. Is that kind of how that's, that's flowing? Right. That's exactly right. And we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about life expectancy and we're going to talk about the deductions because when a family creates and funds a tax exempt trust under uh, internal revenue code 664, they do receive an upfront tax deduction, which is important to note as well. Okay. Okay. So, let's consider the trust payout area. So it's important to consider, you know, if the, if the income beneficiaries are going to receive income, how much income are they entitled to receive each year? We typically structure these trusts to pay 5% per year, which is the minimum permitted under section 664. That is given the expected longevity of a trust. We don't want the principal to be drawn down too quickly. So there are lots of funds left for the future generations. When a trust is created and funded, a calculation is made that estimates the amount that will be paid to charity in the future. Now, this is based on the number and ages of income beneficiaries. And the contributor of the asset to the trust will receive a tax deduction based on this amount, which will be a minimum of 10% of the value of the asset originally gifted to the trust. But the actual deduction could and typically is higher. The way these trusts work is that the shorter the expected duration of the trust, the higher the deduction, and conversely, the longer the expected duration of the trust, the smaller the deduction. So let's, let's use an example to illustrate how deductions work, because I think this is quite interesting. Now, we use software called Crescendo for these types of calculations. There's lots of other types of software out there. Number Cruncher is another one that comes to mind, and these allow us to make or conduct actuarial calculations based on the current um, AFR rate, which is really a discount rate that's put forth by the government, it changes monthly to allow us to discount um, the, what would be future cash flows from the trust to determine the, deduct the deduction that would apply. Okay, so let's assume in our example, William and Kate are 75 and 80, respectively. They have a, they have a child who's 55, married with children 14 and 11. There's a lot of numbers there, but suffice to say that, you know, um, you know, um, there, there's there's uh, five family members. And okay? three generations, I just three mentioned, right? So exactly. we had William and Kate are yeah. basically mom and dad. And then we have a child. Child has two spouse children. and two kids. Yeah. So let's assume the value of the gift they make is a million dollars. 
and using the current AFR rate, it's 5%. Um, now, if just William and Kate are named as income beneficiaries for their lives, their joint life expectancy is 17.3 years. Okay. Kate is 75 and, and uh, sorry, William is 75 and Kate is 80. Their joint life expectancy is 17.3 years, to be precise. If they were to make the gift and have just the two of them be named in the trust, they'd receive a deduction of 528,000, which is just over 50% the value of the gift. Okay. And just for clarification on this, I was going to yeah. mention this early. The reason that that happens is this is what's called a split interest trust. So that right. million dollars is being split into there's a charitable remainder and there's a life interest. And so that million gets reduced by this number that's kind of assumed based on these calculations that's the value of the life interest. That's exactly correct. So really what it is, is the present value of the future amount expected to go to charity. They receive a deduction for that present value amount based on the calculation that you referred to. Okay. So here's what's interesting. So just with just William and Kate, the duration of the trust would be a life expectancy of 17.3 years. A deduction would be just over 50%. If we added their children, the expected as so the way this would work is once the last surviving of William Kate passes, their their sorry, their their child would start receiving income for their life, but not add the grandchildren, just the child. The, the life expectancy of the trust would ex, would expand to 34.7 years, and the, the deduction amount would reduce to just about 30%. Okay. So by pushing out the timing of the, the distribution, the ultimate distribution of the trust contents to charity, we're reducing the current day tax deduction that, that William and Kate would receive. Does that make sense, Mary? It does make sense. So that's, again, we have these interests we're looking at. And the longer that that life interest, what you're doing is the, when charity gets the amount, gets something is further down in the future. And so that present value equation changes. Exactly. And then... And then sort of finish the example, if we then add the grandchildren who are 11 and 14 as successor income beneficiaries to their parents, what's interesting about that is we cannot add them for life terms. In other words, they cannot receive income for their life because they're too young. In order, the trust would not qualify under Section 664. So I'll, I'll say what I mean by that. When, it, when you create and fund a tax-exempt trust and add income beneficiaries, a minimum of 10% of the value of the gift being made to the trust needs to be projected to ultimately go to ch charity. And if you have too many income beneficiaries or the income beneficiaries are too young, then you're not able to get them on for a full life, um, for their life. It would have to be limited to a term. So in this case, with William and Kate's grandchildren, they would be need, need to be limited to a term of 20 years to receive the minimum deduction of 10%. Now, and I'd say this, this, like these calculations, that's why we love our software. Because when you start thinking about the calculation of the present value of these numbers, and we have to have at least 10% go to charity at the end, I'd say that some of that, and I've used Number Cruncher, actually not familiar with Crescendo, so I'll have to check into that. But it's very helpful to have great software to help with these calcs. Completely, totally, yeah. We never would never propose to do any of this by hand. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. If you had a dollar for every financial advisor that just wanted your money, your financial future would already be secure. 
At Foster Group, our team is different. One whose focus is on you and your dreams. Together, we'll create a strategy that helps you get there. Wherever there is for you. Foster Group. Your financial life. Truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. So so that's how this works. So, the, so again, the deduction, the, the, the more income beneficiaries you add and the more generations you add, the lower the deduction, the lowest deduction you can receive to have the trust qualify under Section 664 is 10%. So um, for those who are more technical, I just want to comment on the structure of the trust. Um, Tax-exempt trusts, as I'm referring to them here today, are really NIMCRUTs or net income with makeup charitable remainder unit trusts. And these are special charitable remainder trusts with a provision that allows a family to uh, not take income if they would if they desire not to. So in order to achieve this, we will use an LLC structure within the trust to contain the underlying asset. So let's use William and Kate as an example. They're gifting a million dollar appreciated capital asset to a trust. The way we would set this up would be the trust wouldn't actually own the asset. Um, The asset would be owned by an LLC and the LLC would be the sole asset of the trust. And typically, this would be set up so that the sole asset of, this, of the trust would be a 99% interest in the LLC, so that the, one, the remaining 1% would be owned by the controlling manager outside of the CRT. This is a, a structure that's used to help control income distributions from a NIMCRUT. Okay, this, this controlling manager can be really anyone other than the person creating and funding the trust. And any income beneficiaries who could receive income from trust In other words, it can't be a disqualified person in relation to the trust. And it's typically an advisor, like an attorney or someone outside the family um, that the income beneficiary knows and trusts. And oftentimes when a client has children and they have children, we may suggest using separate tax exempt trusts for each child or line of the family to keep things simpler as a way to just keep it really, really simple. And I'm often asked, Mary, um, is there a minimum size asset one should consider gifting to a trust? And the answer is technically no, but practically given the fees involved in creating a trust and for ongoing administration, a trust probably does not make a lot of sense for an asset valued at less than $500,000. But, you know, we would typically see assets of a million dollars or more being gifted to these trusts. And and I think that's a fair statement because these are not the easiest things in the world to set up. There's some other strategies that you can use at lower amounts, this probably is one that, you know, the million dollars makes sense. Well, you talked about the tax deferral benefits and the ability to stretch income to family members for like 50 to 60 years. What are some of the other benefits that are associated with these tax-exempt trusts? That's a great question. So the first is income deferral, which I touched on, but I wanted to drill down more into this because it gets very interesting. A properly constructed and properly managed tax-exempt trust can provide a period of tax-free deferral 
during which no payments are made to the beneficiaries, and instead the assets will grow inside the trust tax-free. Uh, when this deferral is in place, the trustee maintains a bookkeeping account called an accumulation account. Each year while the deferral is occurring, the amount that would have been eligible to be paid, so for and the example we've used with William and Kate, 5%, but wasn't, is added to the accumulation account. So for example, William and Kate's trust could have paid out $50,000 a year, right? A million dollar gift based on 5% is $50,000 a year. But if the trust is in deferral mode, which is really just to say they don't need or want the income, so they're gonna defer the income. But if the trust is in deferral mode for five years, after five years, there would be $250,000 in the accumulation account. And after five, after these five years of deferral, was, um, William and Kate wanted to take the $250,000 out of the trust or something up to $250,000 out of the trust, they could. They would just withdraw it from the, the makeup account or the, accumulate, the accumulation account. So, so what's interesting about this structure, this ability to defer, Mary, is Although a, a family is entitled to take 5% from the trust, they don't have to. So if they have other sources of income and they decide they don't want to take, because you know they don't need more taxable income than, or don't want more taxable income than they need, they could just defer income during that year and use other sources of income. And then when they need income in the future, they could draw from the accumulation account. So that's a very important benefit of these types of trusts is income deferral. And what about another, asset protection, Dave? I think yeah, that's totally. another yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is important, and this is oftentimes overlooked with these trusts. In addition to the tax benefits of the tax-exempt trust, because it is a trust, it can include a spendthrift clause, which under certain circumstances will protect the trust assets from any claims that might be brought against the trust income beneficiaries. So basically, the trust assets can be protected from creditors. So are there disadvantages of the tax-exempt trust? Well, there are some disadvantages. The first, the first disadvantage I wanna, I wanna mention is the irrevocable nature of these trusts. Mary, I'm sure you've drafted these types of trusts and you know these, the term irrevocable is written throughout these trusts. The instruments themselves, the trust documents are irrevocable. So once the trust is created and funded, it's not possible to make changes to the trust itself. This said, when a family has a tax exempt trust, they do have what we call secondary planning options. And Mary, we're going to do a podcast on this in the future, talking about the options families have available to them when they have an existing tax exempt trust. They can they can gift their interest to charity, they can terminate the trust, they can sell their interest, they can do what we call a tax free exchange. But the trust itself is irrevocable, and so that's something that the that someone choosing to use one of these trusts would need to consider. Another disadvantage of a tax-exempt trust is access to principal. The income beneficiaries of a tax-exempt trust do not have access to trust principal. So for example, when William and Kate contribute their asset to a trust and it's sold, I've already noted that they will have the right to the income payout, usually what well, we're saying 5% each year for their joint life, and for, then for the life of their child and then their grandchildren. But the trust principal itself no longer belongs to William and Kate. In other words, after gifting their appreciated assets of the trust, they go from owning the asset outright to owning the right to a stream of payments into the future from the trust. And I should emphasize that this stream of payments is a capital asset. And this is why a family with a tax exempt trust has access to secondary planning opportunities down the road should they wish. And going into this strategy, I'd say this is one of those things that where I really like to be 
the, see the collaboration with advisors. Because if I'm going to propose a charitable remainder trust to a client, I want a financial advisor at the table who's familiar with the overall financial statements and the needs and an accountant, somebody who's, you know, each of the people who says like, you know, can they really put this much into the trust? Because as you point yes. out, they have a right to a certain amount of income. Is that cash flow going to be sufficient given that lack of access to principal? And I think Absolutely. that's a great point. That's a really, really good point, Mary. Thank you. I also want to touch on another con or disadvantage of a tax exempt trust under Section 664 is self-dealing. It's just something to be aware of. We think of these or call these prohibited transactions that one must consider if they're looking to create and fund one of these trusts. Income beneficiaries of a tax exempt trust must be mindful of regulations regarding self-dealing. Specifically, you cannot borrow money from a trust or you cannot lend money to a trust or buy or sell assets from or to the trust. An operating business should not be owned by the trust as this will result in unrelated business taxable income or UBTI. So those are some of the disadvantages, Mary. And that's a, the self-dealing is a really important thing. You do not want to violate the self-dealing rules. So we do spend a lot of time talking with clients about that before we go into these strategies. So let's talk about the creation and management of a tax-exempt trust under Section 664. So tax-exempt trusts should be created and managed by professionals. It's recommended that if someone's considering this type of a trust, that they talk to their estate planning attorney who, who can sit down, have a conversation, and advise them about how to best create such a trust and then ultimately draft the trust for the client. Once created, the management of the trust is frequently split between a trustee who attends to all the trust-specific compliance, accounting, reporting, tax returns, and an investment manager who handles the investments. The duties of a trustee typically include, well, prudent administration for one, monitoring asset management, overseeing distributions, record keeping, and of course, tax compliance. And that whole response is why you don't do this strategy with a $10 bill, right? That's exactly right, because there, there, there are some moving parts and there are some fees involved in creating and funding and ultimately having one of these trusts, yes. So what type of investments are suitable within the tax-exempt trusts? So once an appreciated capital asset is gifted to the trust and sold, the proceeds are typically invested into a diversified portfolio of as I've already mentioned, typically stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs. The way I think about it in terms of what is permissible as investments within the trust are roughly, roughly the same as those for an individual retirement account or IRA. So if, it, if, if an investment is suitable for an IRA, it's probably suitable for a tax-exempt trust. The one thing to be careful about, if an, invest, if an investment that generates UBIT, um, UBIT is taxed at 100% within a tax-exempt trust. So if you if you're looking to invest in something that's going to generate you, but it's probably something you should reconsider because um, it's just disadvantageous. It's not illegal, but it is taxed at 100%. So really, it should be avoided if possible. And I'm just going to ask you to remind us what that acronym stands for. It's Unrelated Business Taxable Income. So I've always wondered, since you said that actually correctly, it's Unrelated Business Taxable Income, why it's you, but rather than... UBTI. But anyway, we don't need... <laughs> it's, it's been an issue for me for a long time. Okay, let's... Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be dyslexic in this business. Right. Okay, so <laughs> let's talk about 
how the trust, the income of the trust is taxed and when, and there's accounting considerations with these trusts. Okay. So let me, that's a great question. I love the question. And I want to first and foremost say, Mary, I am not an accountant, but I can tell you the rules of accounting as they relate to these trusts are actually very complicated. Um, Section 664 provides the tax exempt trust keep track of four buckets of income. These buckets, roughly speaking, are ordinary income, number one. Number two, long-term capital gain income. Number three, tax-exempt income. And number four, trust capital. When a trust earns income, so let's say you have an investment within a trust, Mary, and that investment earns income. That income goes into, and this is in an accounting sense, into the appropriate bucket. So when the trust makes a payment to an income beneficiary, the tax laws say, that those payments are deemed to come first from ordinary income. So any ordinary income earned by the trust gets distributed first until that bucket is empty. Then any long-term capital gain income earned by the trust gets distributed next until that bucket is empty and so on and so forth. We call these accounting rules, sorry, the accounting rules I'm referring to are worst in first out. They're called, it's called worst in first out accounting. Because ordinary income, any ordinary income, which is taxed at the highest marginal rate, is distributed first, and then long-term capital gain income, and then so on and so forth. So the worst income in gets paid out first. Okay? A tax-exempt trust is a separate reporting entity for tax purposes. So even though the trust itself is tax-exempt, it must file tax returns. These returns might be quite complex, but such complexity does not affect the income beneficiary or income beneficiaries. Each income beneficiary will receive a tax form K-1 from the trust. This will tell uh, how much income they received from the trust during the year. Uh, And these these forms are typically one page of information. So everyone, every income beneficiary receives income from their tax exempt trust will receive a K-1 telling them how much income they received that year. So, and I do love K-1s. I think they're, even though they're like one-page forms, they're incredible sources of information. (laughs) There's a lot packed in there. Well, let's talk about a question that is kind of important to me in the sense that as we approach, you know, year-end planning, which is one of the things we do a lot of year-end tax planning, then we get, we'll get during that year-end phase, a lot of calls from people about strategies such as this. So if somebody's thinking about setting up a tax-exempt trust, let's just talk about how long is it going to take and what do you need to consider in relation to designing the trust? So a a tax-exempt trust, I've already said, should be created by a professional, someone like yourself, Mary, an experienced trust and estate attorney or another experienced professional shouldn't take, depending on how busy that, that individual is, it shouldn't take more than a week or so to create the trust. In fact, we have created them in, in a matter of a day or two, but generally speaking, it's realistic to think that a trust could be created in a week or so. But it's not just the, the drafting of the trust, it's all of the, the thought and the planning that goes into constructing or architecting the trust as well. So what I always say is, if you mentioned year-end planning, if someone is contemplating this type of planning, I wouldn't wait till year-end to talk to your your counsel. That's what I wanted you to say. As possible. <laughs> yeah, be as, be as proactive as possible in making this happen um, because it can take more time than you think. Because um, while you so can draft and put them together quickly, 
That's not yeah. always like these are, as we've gone through, have a lot of consequences. There's positives, there's drawbacks. And so even though the actual trust itself can be created quickly, to me, yeah. the important part is having a conversation about whether it makes sense for you and exactly. what generations you're going to yeah. include. Anyway, yeah. so yeah, go ahead and talk about some of the considerations. Well, Please. once so once an asset owner has decided to use a tax-exempt trust under Section 664, there's really, we see four easy decisions to make. And we call them easy, but um, really the question is, do you want to be an income beneficiary in the trust? Do you have a spouse you want to be an income beneficiary? Uh, do you want to be the income beneficiary? Who do you want to be the income beneficiaries after you and your spouse are no longer living? And what property do you want to contribute to the trust for the trust to sell without tax and reinvest? So again, who are the income beneficiaries in the trust? What asset do you want to give to the trust? Those are really the big questions to ask. And I would add one, Dave, in the sense that part of the conversation is how much do you want charity to benefit? So we have the clients who aren't as interested in charity but are more interested in tax benefits. But I'm also blessed to have a lot of clients who are very charitably inclined. And so yeah. I would just, I would add a question number five to that as that's, part of that. That's a great, that's a great point. Yeah. So how much, how, how charitable are you? How much do you care about charity? And it, well, is charity a primary planning consideration for you or not? Absolutely. That's a great question. So we've covered a lot in this episode today, but do you have any last thoughts? Well, a last thought I have is a conversation I had with an attorney actually just the other day. And during the course of a conversation talking about these tax-exempt trusts, uh, I really felt that this individual experienced a shift in the way they were they perceived these trusts. So the advisor, as I mentioned, is an attorney. He's practiced trust and estates planning for something like 40 years. He's prescribed many charitable remainder trusts for a number of clients over the years. These clients have tended to be very charitable. So they may have had a had a charity in the community they wanted to support. Of course, they had an appreciated asset and some desire for income for the remaining life. So the idea of a CRT made a lot of sense. But when I explained to him how, how such a trust could be designed to benefit a family that did not consider charity a key planning objective, namely stretching income to family members for a period of 50 to 60 years, plus giving the family the ability to defer income in years you don't want to take income, he was like, I never thought of it that way. And there is something else that is interesting. When I talk about families not voicing charity as a key planning objective, once they agree that setting up such trust is a good idea, aside from any charitable benefit, they tend to come around to the fact that their family will have the ability to create a legacy down the road, which can involve financial gifts to their community or to causes that are important to their heirs. And if you think about it, this, is, this allows for more total dollars to charity, which is pretty cool. Uh, again, this solution is not going to fit with every client. It's really just another option. But in some cases, it's an option that many have overlooked simply because the focus is on the charitable component of the planning, not on the multi-generational focus of the planning. And I would just like to note, Mary, um, we're recording three subsequent specialized podcasts to expand on this planning topic, specifically looking at clients, families with really three types of appreciated assets. First and foremost, uh, investment real estate, also looking at concentrated positions. And this is usually publicly traded securities that are more than 5% of an investor's net worth in a taxable account they're looking to sell, uh, and business interests. And within each of these podcasts, we talk about the advantages and disadvantages of using a tax-exempt trust, touching 
other options that can be used and present illustrations, I, I think our perspective is unique. And I'm looking forward to those future podcasts and very much appreciate your willingness to do them. And and I would just note that in preparing to discuss the topic, we decided it was a fairly complex topic that we were originally talking about doing one or two and decided there's no way we could do that reasonably and so made it into a series. And I think it's a, a greatly organized series. Yes, thank you, Mary. So in closing, I just wanted to say that if any family with an appreciated capital asset they wish to sell who has a desire to defer taxes on the sale, receive an upfront tax deduction, and have the opportunity to take income for themselves and subsequently their children and possibly grandchildren, irrespective of their charitable motivation, could potentially benefit from a tax-exempt trust under Internal Revenue Code 664. Well, thanks very much for joining me today, today, Dave. As we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory, and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.